Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. Hello, my name's Jane Perone, and I host a show about houseplants called On the Ledge. Welcome. After last week's tantrum, I'm back to my usual calm and happy state this week, bringing you another instalment in my Leaf Botany series with plant biologist Baronda L. Montgomery, here to talk about what plants know and her new book, Lessons from Plants. Plus, I answer a question about plants to keep in your shower. A warm welcome to this week's new Patreon subscribers. Janet, Lisa, Chris, Danielle and Donna became legends. Megan became a super fan and Ray became a crazy plant person. Thanks to all of you. If you want to find out more about being a Patreon subscriber and unlocking extra content in the form of my extra leaf episodes, check out the show notes at janeperone.com and you'll also find details there of how to make a one-off donation if you don't want a regular commitment. And thanks to RN Gardner, who supported the show by leaving a five-star review for On The Ledge. Please go and fill out my survey if you haven't done so already. You have until Monday, May the 10th, the end of the day, UK time, to fill it in and be in with the chance of winning a £25 spread shirt voucher. Your answers will help me determine the future direction of On The Ledge. So do check out the show notes and click on the link to take part. I know some people had problems with that link. Hopefully you will be able to click on it and it should work fine. But please report back if you have any problems. Thanks also to everyone who came back to me with your own plant peeves after last week's episode. Lots of you are angry about glitter and paint sprayed onto plants, which I think we've talked about on the show before. Rapscallion got annoyed about mini planters the size of egg cups with a sprig stuck in it. Iris doesn't like Tillandsias glued onto sea urchin shells. Jody raged about bonsai listed as houseplants. And Jamie is horrified by the idea of calling bottom watering butt chugging. I think that's another one I've moaned about on the show before. And one last one from Ronya. I hope I'm pronouncing your name right. Hoyers that are rooted and sold in coconut husk. Yes, it works in a tropical climate. 
but it's a death sentence in your average home. It's also almost impossible to remove. I feel your pain. I have been there before. Do go on to the Facebook group Houseplant Fans of On The Ledge if you want to share your plant peas. The thread is still there and I'll link from the show notes. What do plants know? This is a question that's been bothering me since I started growing plants at a very young age. Can they tell when they're surrounded by their fellow species? Do they know the difference between an animal, a human and another plant? How do they communicate with each other? Baronda L. Montgomery's new book, Lessons from Plants, delves into many of these questions. And that's why I was so excited to get her on the show. So let's dive right in and find out Lessons from Plants with Baronda Montgomery. I'm Baronda Montgomery. I am a professor, MSU Foundation professor at Michigan State University, jointly appointed in two departments, the Department of Biochemistry and Molecular Biology, as well as the Department of Microbiology and Molecular Genetics. Uh, my research group studies how organisms such as plants and photosynthetic bacteria, um, who have really a limited scope in terms of the space in which they live, determine what's going on around them, what the light cues are, which nutrients are available, so that they can match their behaviors to the environments in which they find themselves to really strive for success and limit any kind of damage. Baronda, that sounds like you've got a lot to say on this topic, which is I'm kind of summarizing <laughs> as what do plants know? Lots of, of people who've listened to my show have kind of taken on lots of house plants and they're constantly trying to figure out how to keep them happy. But what I'm fascinated to discover from you is quite how plants understand or sense the world around them, which is what I want to get into today. You've written this wonderful book, um, which I have in front of me, and it has a beautiful cover, Lessons from Plants. Should we just start there? If you could tell me what prompted you to write this book and what it offers in terms of an insight into the world of plants. Absolutely. So I really was prompted to write the book after a number of years, really trying to share my enthusiasm for plants with those in my life who were outside of the sciences. So I come from a family of people who work more in business and healthcare and personal care spaces. And so I was one of the first in the family to really set down a path where I was dedicated um, over the years to studying biological organisms and being in scientific spaces. So some of my real interest in trying to share what I was learning about plants and the great enthusiasm and awe I had from them came from wanting to invite family and friends into my space. And so I started to share lessons with them. I happen to have parents who are very much into gardening, flower gardening and vegetable gardening. So some of the things I was learning was really translating to them things that I was watching them do in their spaces. And over the years, that kind of commitment to wanting to be open about the enthusiasm for plants also really impacted the ways in which I gave scientific talks. And ultimately, a few years ago, giving a scientific talk at a scientific conference, I was approached by an acquisitions editor who had asked if I'd ever thought about writing a book. And so I pitched this idea of really sharing what, not only what I've learned about plants over the years, so there's certainly in the book some of the things that I've learned from a scientific perspective, hopefully, hopefully in an open and accessible way about plants, but also over the years I've learned a lot from plants in terms of reflecting on how they go about being in the world and some things that we might be able to learn from them in that respect. One of the things I wanted to 
start by asking you was about how much kind of putting this in inverted commas consciousness we can we can ascribe to plants as house plant growers we love to kind of give them names and you know she's sassy he's a diva you know giving them different kind of personalities <laughs> but I'd love to get your insight into how plants know things when they are where they are and what's around them. Yeah. So, you know, that's fun to hear. I think that, you know, it's fun to watch the ways in which humans engage with their plants. And I think part of what that is, is, is us um, engaging with other organisms. But it is, an, uh, it is us also picking up on the awareness of plants and the fact that plants, even though they may be of the same species like humans, there's some variation amongst them. So you may notice different things about plants. I think that when we start to talk about consciousness, one of the things that really can become a barrier is that often we're thinking about it from a human perspective of consciousness. And I think that if we instead allow ourselves to think about it as awareness of knowing where you are in context and responding to that, then plants are certainly highly aware and they're certainly able to take in information about what's going on around them and to respond to that. So I think that I, I have kind of not gotten caught up in whether it's consciousness the way we understand consciousness, because it's not. Humans have a brain and a central nervous system. But plants are certainly highly aware um, of who they are. They know if they're you know with the kin-related plants or not. They are clearly aware of what's going on around them. And we can see that whether we are trained botanists or not. Those in our homes will see a plant turning towards a window, and that's an awareness of the direction from which light is coming. So I think that they are highly aware, and that awareness to me is awe-inspiring when you really start to understand the myriad ways in which plants are aware of what's going on around them. And I think that, you know, in terms of us talking to our plants or engaging with them, we offer that as interaction. They recognize it. It's recognized often as increased carbon dioxide or movement or other ways. And so there's an awareness of our being there, even if they don't know that we're human um, in terms of being able to perceive that. So I think there's a lot going on there that to me is still worthy of great awe and great um, understanding. This is making me wonder whether the plant that sat on its own in a pot in a hallway somewhere is thinking to itself, I'm all alone. There's no, none of my family are around me. I'm totally isolated. You said that plants are aware whether they are, whether there's other plants around. How does that awareness take place? Yeah, so the awareness happens through multiple channels. One of them is that uh, plants are able to perceive if there are other plants close by. And so that close by is perceived as shade, but it's shade that's different if it's a plant next to it versus if it's a human or a building next to it, because the light, the colors of light, as well as the intensity of light changes if it's a plant next to it, whereas often just whether it's dim or bright changes if it's a non-plant. So certainly when there are close um, individuals next to it, it can perceive that. In addition to changes in kind of the light, there, there are chemicals, which is a kind of language that's produced by plants. And plants of one species often are producing the same chemical language. So that's perceived as um, a related type of plant, whereas a plant that's distantly related often produces a different version of that language. So much like humans, we're able to detect where if it's a language we've been embedded in and picked up um, over time. And so plants are able to communicate through chemicals, um, as well as changes in the, the environment when there are uh, beings uh, near it. Does that mean then that a plant will be, and I'm not going to use the word happier, but will a plant be able to grow better when it knows that it's got other 
similar plants around it is that is that a sort of thing that then makes it able to interact in its environment in a more successful way at times yes so often plants that are similar will communicate and collaborate so for example if there is potential danger and there are herbivores around um, a plants of similar type if one of them are attacked they will communicate to others and those plants can then preemptively uh, put their defenses up against potential danger. Um, sometimes plants do compete for access to resources. And what's interesting about that is that if they are um, in an environment with kin, they temper that competition. So they don't compete um, as vigorously as if they're growing with the plant that they're not related to. So certainly being in a community with others who you recognize as kin either tempers your competition or will encourage collaboration. So they certainly will grow better and defend better when they're communicating with each other in that particular way. It's just mind blowing to think that all this is going on under our noses, both in our homes with houseplants, but also when we go outside. I mean, I can't imagine in a large forest how much incredible networks of communication are taking place that we're just, as humans, completely unaware of. That's mind-blowing. Absolutely. You know, as we're just going about our hike, there's all of this communication going on around us, collaboration between plants, collaboration between plants and other organisms. But yes, fascinating biochemistry going on right before our eye or either under our feet in terms of what's happening in the soil with the roots of plants. Yeah. I I mean, we haven't even got on to mycorrhizal fungi and what they're doing, but that's another whole world. World of incredible stuff. I mean, I've often thought really I should start another whole podcast on on the the fungus world because that is oh, just yes. again. I mean, talk about mind blowing. We're getting you know, it's it's absolutely incredible. And I think the more we can understand this, the more we have respect for um, the plants and trees around us. Hopefully, and understand that they are doing these incredible things. And just because it's not something it's not the way our brains work or it's not the way our bodies work doesn't mean that it's not equally as incredible do plants have a sense of self though are they able to tell where they end and something else begins i'm not i don't know if that's a particularly good way of expressing it but yes yeah i think i i completely understand yeah so plants do have a sense of self in that when you there's a lot of evidence in in the scientific literature and even in some of our experiments that we've done that if you have plants growing next to each other as they come near to each other sometimes there's a slight change in their behavior or if the tips touch there's a response to that at the molecular level and so that's a sense that you understand where you end and somewhere else begins. Um, Even if you look in forests, there's something that um, are called these uh, canopy gaps or canopy spaces that you'll see. And that's an awareness of plants realizing that they're growing next to someone. And originally, you know, people thought that was just kind of a physical abrasion of when they touch. But there's scientific evidence that there is a genetic network that helps control um, these gaps in the canopy between trees, which is clearly an awareness of making space for someone growing next to you. You can also see it with roots under the ground. Um, where plants that are of two different species, the roots are excluded from intertwining. And so that's an awareness of your self roots versus the roots of someone else. And those are often, again, mediated through kind of chemical signal and chemical awareness. But plants are able to detect um, when there's self and when there's another plant or other being there. 
I've seen so many uh, memes uh, on Twitter and so on uh, and on social media generally about the fact that, you know, plants that seem to be able to grow in a crack in the pavement in the wild. And then Mm -hmm. we put one in a pot in our homes and they just keel over. They don't last. Um, And it's that they're somehow being coquettish by the fact they're refusing to survive. But how does a plant in a pot presumably it's quite limited it's literally limiting its interaction with the outside world in the sense that it's in a pot it's not connected to the the fungal network and the root roots of other plants and and how so does that mean that house plants will have to adopt different strategies to to adapt to life in a pot yeah so i mean life is certainly different for the same plant when it's in a pot versus uh when it's in a field And that's because when it's in a field, it is connected with this entire network of bacteria in the soil, fungi in the soil, interacting with other plants. Um, And when it's in the potted soil, although, you know, we think we're giving it the best of everything that it needs, um, we probably have rich organic soil, we may even give it nutrients. That's a very different environment from its, its natural context. Sometimes that soil although it doesn't seem to us to be sterile because it's dirt, compared to what it would find in the environment, it can be depleted of the rich organisms and community that it would find. Um, Certainly, it's not often interacting through its root system, although it may be interacting with other plants through the air if you have more than one plant. It's really growing in isolation. And I think that, you know, we think about the ways in which humans in isolation often don't fare well socially or mentally. If you have a human who's in solitary confinement at something, you see mental effects over that of time. Plants in a pot, even though you're giving them a lot of nutrients, a lot of resources, that's a very different environment than being connected in a rich and diverse community of other plants and other organisms in a natural context. And so sometimes what happens in those cases is that plants build up their kind of hardiness by having to respond to herbivores. They induce some kind of defensive chemicals, having to recognize others. And in those pots, sometimes those things are not being induced. And so if you get some mites or other flies, they've been living a happy life where they've not had to be on the defense. And that comes as quite a shock to their (laughs) system. So those are some of the things that we're watching, even though we think we're doing the best care, we've protected them from really strengthening their kind of natural abilities to deal with diversity, good and bad in natural context. It's fascinating to hear that when a pest does land, that that plant will then be sending out chemicals messages to other plants saying this is around that's how do you as a as a botanist how do you go about measuring that do you have to kind of put plants into a sealed environment and then measure those vocs yeah so a lot of times that is what happens so there are volatile organic chemicals that you sometimes put plants in an enclosed environment and you're able to Uh, sample the air around them to see what volatiles are there. Some of these volatiles actually stay within the plant and are, are, are transported through the internal transport systems. And so often what people can do is kind of collect the plants and measure some of the changes in the volatiles that are accumulating in the leaves. But you certainly can measure what's considered kind of the airspace or headspace around plants as well. Yeah, I mean, I, I I imagine we have so much more to learn about this stuff. The first time I heard about this actually was in a, a novel called The Overstory, um, yes, which yes. is an uh-huh. amazing book, which I highly recommend anyone to read about about trees and the the way that trees communicate. And well, it's about lots of things, but it's it's a really interesting book. But I, I until mm-hmm. I wasn't really fully aware of 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 the way that 
the powerful messages that can be sent through those VOCs. And it's, it is absolutely fascinating stuff. Tell me about uh, plants and memory. Um, surely perennial plants must have some kind of memory because they know when to cup to pop out every year. They know when to flower. <laughs> I mean, again, it's a human construct, the memory, but what's the plant equivalent? Yeah, so plants do have memory. And a lot of times, you know, some of the mechanisms by which plants have memory is not different from other organisms. So there's been a lot of talk about epigenetic changes in humans um, and how there are kind of these markers along our DNA that are evidence of kind of past environmental exposures. Plants have similar mechanisms. One of the ones that we know the most about, I would say, in plants is how uh, cold can serve as a, as a memory. Uh, plants can remember when they've expo been exposed to cold. And some perennial plants, this is critical because it's that exposure to cold that tells you you've been through winter. And so you have to remember that you've been through winter so that you know spring is coming and it's time to flower. And there's a real understanding of how plants, the DNA and epigenetic markers are accumulating during this wintering, and that can be passed on to the seeds. And so there certainly is a memory that plants have. And a lot of times these memory are most memories are most um, impressed by reproducible environmental signals. So long periods of coal is a winter, long days is summer. And so they're using cues like light and temperature that are generally reproducible in the environment as memory over time. And so you can certainly see that plants do have memory. You know, just we've had a lot of conversations about intergenerational uh, memory in humans over the years. And plants, there's some evidence, and certainly you can study that by following seeds that, um, that there may be such in plants as well. The future is a hefty responsibility and not one that we take lightly. But then taking things lightly has never been what hefty is about. That's why we've created the Hefty Renew program that turns hard to recycle plastics into valuable resources like park benches and building materials. To participate, simply fill up an orange Hefty Renew bag with accepted items, tie it up, and drop it in with your regular recycling. That's it. It's that easy. It's time to rethink recycling with Renew. Particular valued resources may vary by geography. More info available at heftyrenew.com. More from my interview with Baronda shortly, but now an update on my crowdfunder. A mahoosive thank you to everyone who has been pledging to support my houseplant book, Legends of the Leaf. I'm at 91% and I've got till the end of May to reach my target, so only another 9% to go. It's getting really exciting and I want to reach the end so that I can really focus on getting this book out there. So please support me if you can. You can use the discount code MaySoon10, that's M-A-Y-S-O-O-N-1-0, -O to get 10% off your pledge now. Visit the show notes or just type in janeperone.com and there's a big plug at the top of my page for the book. The book won't happen unless I get to 100%. So please spread the word and make your pledge for one of the sweet offers you can get, including a print of the beautiful artwork by my illustrator Helen Entwistle, a signed copy of the book, or a houseplant consultation with me. How fun would that be? And if you've booked one of those consultations, just to say, as soon as the book reaches 100%, then I will get your details from Unbound and we'll be able to set up those consultations. And now, more lessons from plants with Baronda Montgomery. 
What are the unanswered questions for you of plant knowledge and understanding and sensing that you're still looking for an answer to? There are so many. I mean, I think, you know, I I think back to when my son was a cute little third grader and his teacher was talking about science and plants and she, you know, had exposed him to photosynthesis. And she said, you know, plants and photosynthesis are one of the things we understand a lot about. Um, And I remember my son raised his hand, she told me and said, that can't be true because my mom is still talking about photosynthesis and plants all (laughs) the time, she and her colleagues. I think there's so much we still have to know about plants. And part of that is because, um, you know, we study a relatively small number of the plants that we know exist on Earth. We call them model species. They're plants that are easy to grow in the lab and we kind of understand their genetics. But there's so many other things that we don't know about plants because there's such a huge range of them that aren't easy for us to cultivate in the lab, um, that live in spaces that are very different from the, you know, plants. We talked about plants growing in pots in our home. The conditions in which we grow plants in the lab is even more restricted and defined. These are really overprotected plants. And so I think just the ways in which plants do respond in natural context, we have a lot more to learn about that. Uh, The range of signals to which plants are able to respond. And I think part of the limitation we have in understanding plants is has been for many years, sometimes the technology. But I think it's also the ways in which we limit our understanding of plants because we try to understand them from the context in which we understand ourselves. So there are so many questions, I think, that are out there. And one of them is how much plants do know which animals are around them and how they respond to that. Um, I I really am fascinated with some of those particular things, questions we will never understand in my lifetime. But I think we have so much more to learn from the range of plants which we can study and the ways in which we really start to break the limits of our understanding how they are responding, um, not just limited to our own human context. And in the book, you talk about some lessons that we can learn from the way we engage with plants as caretakers and and the way that actually plants relate to each other and the way we can support and mentor each other. Um, And I think you talk a little bit about a a book that's been very fundamental for my understanding of plants, Braiding Sweetgrass by Robin Wall Kimmerer. I mean, it's it's an amazing book. And and you're kind of building on some of that knowledge and considering indigenous plant knowledge as well and what that can bring to our understanding. There's so much to talk about here. I don't quite know where to start, but why did you feel like you had to put that into the book? Well, I thought it was really important. Um, I have learned so much and actually found hope um, in the ways in which I reflect on how humans have this kind of natural engagement with plants. And most humans have a default understanding that plants should grow. Um, And so a plant in our environment, if it's struggling, we really start to ask, what can I provide for it? Um, What nutrients does it need? What does it need to move in the house? What's going on external to that plant that's limiting its growth because we expect that it should grow? Um, And I think when I expanded that to also thinking about kind of the ways, you know, the things that I did learn from Robin Wall Kimmerer and reading both her books and having the privilege of hearing her talk, but also reflecting on some of the kind of traditional stories and knowledge that exist in my own family from generations, um, you know, amongst those, um, I'm from the South in the U.S., a descendant of enslaved people. And there's a lot of knowledge just has been passed from generation to generation about how to use plants and engage with plants medicinally, um, all of those kinds of things. And I think there's a lot of knowledge that we have from our human experience with plants 
paired with this kind of human expectation that plants could grow, that really provides me hope that we possess the ability to engage with others in different ways, both, you know, from very different perspectives, um, the diversity in which um, one of the stories that I love that's been shared by Robin Walkimmer and other indigenous peoples are how they are often using farming practices that are about growing different plants together, polyculture, and the benefits that come from plants growing in diverse communities and supporting each other um, through collaboration. And I think that that kind of default expectation of growth, but understanding of the power of living in diverse communities offers a lot of hope for me um, in terms of what our capacity as humans is, even when we don't live up to that capacity all the time. And so I think that there's just some powerful lessons that we can draw from the natural world. And those are some uh, that have really stuck with me over the years. Yeah, it's powerful stuff, isn't it? And it's really interesting to talk to um, relatives, older relatives about plants. Whenever you speak to older relatives, you can unlock sometimes some fascinating stuff. I'm interested now in the way that it's now this millennial generation that's latched onto houseplants and and indeed younger. Mm -hmm. And I wonder whether that is going to be a gateway for them to start appreciating plants outside as well. I guess that's the hope. I hope so. I mean, and it's been quite inspiring. I talked about how plants have often served as a beacon for hope for me and something I wrote recently. But one of the things that's been really fascinating to watch is the ways in which plants have popped up in social media spaces across the globe, particularly even it seems increasing in this pandemic. And I think that one of the things that's fascinating about plants is that you know, it gives you someone to care for in your environment. And whether you live in a space where you can have pets or not, uh, plants can be brought into most spaces. And I think that they feed into this kind of human need to care for something else. You know, and there's actually a lot of evidence that plants have kind of a, um, they can really be almost a therapy for people engaging with plants. And there are some therapeutic practices where people are encouraged to care for plants. And I think that one of the things that's fascinating with plants is almost anybody can pick that up and engage with them, but also in ways that sometimes other organisms don't really allow us to see the immediate outcomes of the care that we invest. You can see when you're caring for a plant and there's great fascination when the, when a new leaf, leaf emerges or you see a leaf coming out. You see lots of pictures and videos of this on Instagram and TikTok and all of these spaces. But you see the outcomes of your care. You see that plant thriving and it's fascinating to see how it, a new leaf is emerging or a new branch is emerging. And so I think that it really resonates with our ability to engage with someone in these spaces that's been elevated in a time when many of us have been isolated, either alone or with our families during this global pandemic. And I do hope that, you know, the kind of love we've seen for plants, the fascination we've seen with people growing lettuce from a lettuce scrap, right? That some of those fascinations will carry on after this moment. And I hope that in addition to just the general fascinations, that people are drawing real lessons um, from, from what they're observing in their spaces. Yeah, it's really encouraging, isn't it? And uh, for me, it's been it's been a really enjoyable process to see so many more people catching on to this stuff. Was plant something that you've always had an interest in? You said that, you, you know, your fam- wider family don't have a background in botany. Was it something that just intrinsically fascinated you from from childhood? Well, you know, it's interesting because I, you know, even as I say that my mom is a botanist, she's not a trained botanist, but I grew up in a house with just hundreds of plants, it seemed both inside and outside. 
And I wasn't always fascinated with them when she was caring for them. Although, you know, she had some that would climb along the walls and vine around things. And I I thought they were beautiful. It was actually years later that I took a plant physiology class and realized all the interesting things that you said, you know, as you said earlier, that are going on right under our nose or in front of our eyes. And certainly I reflected back on that, that I had grown up with someone who had the most exquisite abilities to understand what was going on with her plants and was able to even nurse some of her friends and neighbors plants back to health. So I was embedded in it, but it was it wasn't really a deep conscious engagement at that stage. It was later when I took a class and realized all of the fascinating things happening behind those kind of things that I had been immersed in by osmosis growing up that it all came together. And certainly once I got to that point, you know, the relationship and conversations that I had with my parents, my mom's still an amazing you know, gardener. My dad, who's passed away, was a beautiful vegetable gardener. It's when some of those things came back together from my childhood later, um, as I started to really uh, embrace being a trained botanist, I would say. And is the world of botany changing as an understanding of the, the value of indigenous knowledge about plants? Is that being embraced? I think in pockets, you know, I would argue that probably not as quickly as it should. Um, I think, unfortunately, we often set up these kind of artificial barriers with the things that, you know, humans, untrained humans know about plants and what we trained scientists know. I think we set up unnecessary artificial barriers. But I do think that the work, you know, of people like Robin Wall Kimmerer, who's a professor of ecology um, and still sharing some of those, you know, ethnobotany and indigenous practices is increasing the, the, the awareness of the real importance of that is part of what I hope to do um, in writing this book. I think that we're leaving so much knowledge just out there untapped because we put these artificial barriers between our disciplines and between what's considered good science and what's considered not good science. When I would say it's all types of science and we either decide we're going to access it or not. Yeah. And we've benefited from it so much over the years in terms of so many of our medicines come from plants. And it's fascinating to me how slow some scientists can be to accept that because there are myriad examples when science decades or hundreds of years later has verified something that indigenous people knew all along. And yet we still have this resistance to be open to other ways of knowing. And I think it's really limiting our ability to come to grips with who we are in the space of this planet. And that's one of the reasons why I insist on this really reciprocity for myself of learning about plants, but also learning from them. Well, that's a great point to end on. Thank you so much, Baronda, for joining me on On The Ledge today. It's been really fascinating and um, good luck with your book. I really hope lots of readers get a copy because it's a wonderful read. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for the invitation and the beautiful work that you're doing on this podcast. I really do appreciate you and I appreciate your work. Oh, thank, thank you. So you. Very much. Thanks. <laughs> Thanks. Rhonda Montgomery's book Lessons from Plants is out now, published by Harvard. I'll put all the details in the show notes so you can check it out. And now it's time for question of the week, which comes from Aisha, who has just moved house and has a stand up shower. And once a week, Aisha's plants go into the shower for a bit of a clean down. Now, Aisha loves the feeling of being surrounded by plants while showering taking them back to a childhood spent in Malaysia. And naturally, the thought follows, 
could I hang some trailing plants on the top of the shower? But which ones would thrive in the space? What a great question and an interesting one. I think provided that you're a little bit careful with shampoo, conditioner, etc., shower gel splashing onto the plant in excessive quantities and the water being super hot. I know I like super hot showers, so that may not be good for all plants. I think there's a number of things that you could put in your shower. Air plants are the thing that immediately spring to mind because you can have them hung in all kinds of configurations, either from wires or from netting or just in a metal container of some kind or on hooks. There's lots of different ways you could display them and they would just love that humid atmosphere and suck up all of that moisture. I do think that the moth orchid might not be a bad idea. Mounted on a piece of cork, it would be allowed to get moist and then dry out quite quickly. I think that's definitely worth a try. They're pretty tough and I can't see why that wouldn't work. The other one that I've seen in pictures of showers, which I think would work extremely well, is our old friend Epipremnum aureum, the devil's ivy or golden pothos. I mean, yeah, that plant will be absolutely fine in your shower if you can find a way of putting it high up and then dangling down. It's going to love it in there. They're so easy. If you've got one of those shower caddy plastic holders, you can actually fill that with plants and you could have that full of air plants or maybe a couple of orchids, some ferns. Just make sure that any really delicate leaf plants are not going to be hit by the direct power of the hot water because they might get damaged that way. I've also seen a nice picture of a big a big tall Raphidophora tetrasperma in a shower actually and I think that could work. I think the only thing is if the pot is going to get wet on a daily or twice daily basis then you need to make sure that that growing medium is really free draining so that you're not going to get the soil too moist. That plant's obviously going to get a lot more water than a regular plant would do in normal conditions so just ameliorate the substrate to make sure that it's got loads of perlite or laker or grit just so that water is not going to sit around the roots but it'll love that humidity. I think Spanish moss is another amazingly good choice for your shower. In nature it hangs from trees in huge lovely drapes and you could certainly put some on a hook and have it in your shower room. It's another kind of air plant that uh, lends itself naturally to hanging in a shower. It will just love that humidity. And the Latin name of that one is Tillandsia usneoides. I think the main thing is that you're going to have to experiment and see what fits, what isn't going to fall on your head. That's another peril that I'm sure needs to be considered and what will cope with the humidity levels in there without getting too bashed about or too worried by hot water. So have a try and maybe move things in and out as you experiment And if you can't get any plants in your shower for any reason, then you can always buy yourself a lovely shower curtain covered in pictures of plants. (laughs) There's some beautiful designs out there and you can get that biophilic effect without actually putting plants in your shower for real. If you've got a question for On The Ledge, drop me a line on the ledge podcast at gmail.com. I will be happy to help. And that's another show done and dusted. I will be back next Friday 
when I will be bringing you a whole episode devoted to a certain Dr. David G. Hesseon. Can't wait. Bye! you heard in this episode was Roll Jordan Roll by The Joy Drops, The Road We Used to Travel When We Were Kids by Kamiko, Overthrown by Josh Woodward. All tracks are licensed under Creative Commons. Visit janeperone.com for details. And the Latin name of that one is Tillandsia Usnioides. <laughs> Why are you laughing? That's not a real sentence. <laughs> It is a real sentence. It's not a real sentence. <laughs> this is Nandia's super <laughs> Make it out.